0: Hello, this is Sila Simmons with the Inspired Women, Inspire Women podcast. The show is dedicated to all of the amazing women out there who make it their mission to live their best lives, both personally and professionally. And by doing so, they inspire the rest of us to do the same. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of different women with vastly different backgrounds, you'll hear from women who have staked their claim, who have overcome, who've lost and won, but they persisted and they persevered. If you want to learn more about me, I'm a leadership and organizational development consultant, and you can check out my webpage at SelahSimmons.com. That's S E E L A, Simmons with two M's.com. The word inspire has Latin roots, literally translated it means to breathe life into. Inspiration is contagious, and those who are inspired inspire others. My hope is that by showcasing inspiring women from all backgrounds and walks of life, you will also find the inspiration to persist, to overcome, to rise to the challenge, and to simply live your best life. Welcome to episode two, where Megan Young meets the world.
1: My name is Megan Young, and I am 32 years old. I've been living in Arizona my entire life in the Scottsdale area, born and raised. currently live in East Mesa, and very happy to be chatting with you today. I was born in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, my mother was actually from Missouri, and her family lives currently still in Missouri. So she braved um, braved the hot desert to come out to Arizona in the early '80s, and I was born, um, raised here by by my mom, who was single and um, stayed stayed in Arizona my whole life. <laughs> I, I always thought I wanted to move out of Arizona growing up in. Scottsdale, um, the the demographic is very um, uh, there's there's not a lot of diversity in Scottsdale, or at least wasn't when I was growing up, and so I always thought I wanted to move someplace with kind of more going on and uh, someplace more interesting with people from lots of different places, you know, possibly New York or L.A. or or someplace with a lot of diversity. And that just um, didn't happen. And and actually, I'm so glad that it didn't (laughs) because I've had opportunities uh, over the last 15 years to fall in love with my state kind of again and again.
0: So, Megan has found a way to meet the world right here in her own backyard. I met Megan back in 2009 when she was around her mid 20s. At the time, Megan worked for a nonprofit organization called the Welcome to America Project. The organization serves newly arrived refugee families by setting up apartments and offering some basic necessities to help these refugee families in their new journey in America. And Megan, even at that young age, struck me as poised, graceful, and knowledgeable far beyond her years. I remember being in awe of her leadership and thinking to myself, how does a person in her early to mid-twenties get the confidence and the ability to stand in front of crowds and big groups of people to discuss a politically charged and complex topic like refugee resettlement and immigration? How is it that, at such a young age, Megan managed questions, concerns, and pushback from people who sometimes were twice her age, but she continued to maintain her poise? Megan was as impressive then as she is today. In this episode, you will hear Megan talk about how she learned to take responsibility at an early age, how her curiosity brought into her worldview, and how she found ways to actively seek out and interact with people and cultures from around the world. And you will also hear Megan share her thoughts on why she believes cultural diversity is an integral part of the American experience. So what inspires a girl from Scottsdale, Arizona to meet the world?
1: Well, I guess my mom had made friends with a woman who, um, I, I don't know, but probably looking back, she was likely in the refugee program. So she had made, uh, friends with a woman who had left Czechoslovakia, um, in, in the 1970s, um, had left and then, um, became friends with our family and, and subsequently, um, mm-hmm had gone back to visit after the wall came down. And I remember her bringing this doll to me that, that had, um, beautiful, gorgeous. This was not a doll that I felt like I could play with or take to the park or, <laughs> um, or get messy the way you normally would with dolls, but um, but set it on a, a bookshelf just to really look at. The clothing was just ornate and gorgeous and so different from anything I'd ever seen with the traditional Czechoslovakian um, dresses and the, the boots. And, um, you know, she told me about her home country and I, it just, it I fell in love. And, um, uh, thinking about what this far off place could look like and what the people would be like and what the dances she told me about <laughs> would look like. I've, I've always wanted to explore and travel and, and visit other places. Um, I've always been fascinated by uh, people with accents and different languages, just hearing them, not necessarily understanding, but um, getting to see and hear music and stories from, from other places. Um, has always really fascinated me. In college, I, I wanted to, I found out that you could study abroad, and um, that, that interested me. But like so many other kids, I kind of thought, well, I'll go to England or to France. And when I walked into the study abroad office, uh, not only did I find out that both England and France were extremely expensive places to, to travel to, um, but was encouraged by the staff there to really look at, at other locations where I could maybe learn a more unique language or um, or not be around so many American students or American influences. And uh, Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic at that time actually was pointed out to me as, as an opportunity that was less expensive and, um, and interesting. And remembering that doll and that woman, uh, I... I readily signed up and was very excited, and got to spend um, six months there, and just absolutely loved it. Having grown up in Arizona and in the west of uh, the United States, there's there's very few things that you can touch and feel and see that that have um, long history attached to them. But being in Prague for several months, you know, you walk past a castle every day on your way to school. You you uh, go across a bridge that's been there um, for hundreds of years. You, you get to um, hear and feel and taste and see all of this um, historical importance and things that you've read about and, and things that you learn about, and um, it's just really fascinating.
0: The Center for American Progress posted an article on their webpage titled The 9-11 Generation. You can find it on AmericanProgress.org. The author, Eleni Towns, talks about the impact of 9-11 on the millennials, those born between the years of 1978 and 2000, many of whom were in middle school and high school and in their early 20s when 9-11 happened. The article explores this generation's attitudes toward patriotism, uh, civil liberties versus national security, international relations, and overall tolerance of others. One of the most notable pieces of the article points to the fact that rather than becoming insular, this generation became more curious about the greater world and the role that America plays in it. For example, more students expressed interest in learning languages like Arabic and Dari and Urdu. Some of this is likely influenced by federal government incentives programs. But in the decades post-911, the overall study of religion increased 22%, and granted that this article was authored in 2011 and some of this info may need to be updated but for the most part it seems that instead of hunkering down and shutting out the world this generation seems more defined by reaching out and broadening its understanding of the world as a member of this so-called 9 11 generation and the millennial group megan tells us what prompted her to study political science and how world events her natural curiosity about the greater bro- world and her interest in culture and diversity played out in college and beyond.
1: Um, you know, I was in high school during 9-11, and I, I think that was a really formative period, obviously, for-, for many people. But I think high schoolers in particular, you know, being at such a, a young and influential age, um, I know a lot of students in my, in my same situation, really wanted to kind of understand politics more know more about um, why this had happened to our country, know more about the history, know about uh, how we can make an impact on our country. And, and so um, political science was actually a, a very fairly large major when I was going to school. There were many, many students pursuing that same degree.
0: So Megan successfully participates in the study abroad program and uh, studies in the Czech Republic for six months while in school, and then successfully completes her undergraduate degree in poli-sci at Arizona State University. But it seems that even the realities of quote-unquote adulting post-graduation could not temper her curiosity and desire to learn more about her world. Well,
1: it- came back from studying abroad and wanted more than anything to get out and see more cultures and more countries. I, I definitely had the travel bug. And when I returned back to ASU, I was kind of thrust back into reality of bills and paying for tuition and, um, looking at how I would, um, finish my degree, but also, you know, what kind of job prospects I would have. And um, while I would have loved to kind of take my backpack and travel around the world financially, it just wouldn't have been a very smart decision for me at the time. And so um, I had some great instructors at ASU, great professors. And one of them had mentioned, you know, you might find the refugee program really interesting here in Phoenix. And until he had said that, I really hadn't thought about Working with international individuals in Phoenix, I I didn't really realize that there was such a a large diaspora of of people from many different places here in Arizona. And so I looked up a little more about the refugee program and looked at um, different organizations and opportunities, and was very lucky to work with the International Rescue Committee. When I started working with IRC Phoenix International Rescue Committee the the one of the largest populations that was being resettled at that time was iraqis um iraqis who were forced to flee and so very quickly the connections were made and um and you know there there was a deep sense of responsibility i think from our community and and the individuals um that, that we're working at IRC that you know these individuals are being displaced um, largely because of decisions that our country had made and um, and oftentimes because they've chose to help our troops and, and the US Army and military to um, to translate or interpret or find information and intelligence. and so the connection was was very obvious very quickly and um, the, the Iraqi people are, are beautiful, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and it was probably one of the um, experiences that that led me to a commitment to this cause and to working with those populations.
0: After completing her time at the IRC, Megan then went on to take on a position with the Welcome to America project. And as I had indicated at the beginning of the program, this is where Megan and I met. So from this point on, I have a bunch of questions for Megan. Um, a number of things stand out to me because during this time with Welcome to America Project is where I saw Megan in her early to mid-20s take on the role as a community leader. Uh, I saw her give large presentations, take on tough topics like uh, overall immigration policy and refugee resettlement. I also saw her exercise her organizational leadership skills. She managed uh, volunteers and staff as an executive director within the Welcome to America project. And she certainly helped to shape a vision for the organization as it was transitioning from a founder-led model to more of a community-led model.
1: It's it, it um is an organization that is now I believe seventeen years old, coming up on seventeen years, and at the time that I joined, I had I was very blessed and fortunate to be able to work with the founder, who was involved at that time, Carolyn Manning, and she is absolutely incredible, absolutely incredible. And I, I absolutely loved it. I had an opportunity to kind of work with the organization during some of its, um, some of its growth, from being a founder-led organization to an organization in which community members really took on the responsibility to keep that, that organization running. Um, and, and yeah, I, I loved it. I would have stayed longer. Um, but I think it was time for the organization to have a new a new director, a new, um, voice, a new vision. And, um, and they've done some really great work. I'm very impressed with, uh, Colin Cunningham who, who preceded who followed me in, in becoming the director of Welcome to America. And she's done some really great work and they have a fantastic board of a very, very dedicated and loving individuals. The
0: Welcome to America project is such a success story of, what can be achieved when just a bunch of people get together to do some good. Um, I think we need so much more of that in the world today, especially nowadays.
1: Absolutely. And I think more than that, um, the community really rallying around this and coming together. Um, uh, the story of Welcome to America starting is, is um, something that really touched my heart because about out of 9-11, which impacted my life significantly. Um, here was this family that, that had an opportunity to um, to grieve and, and be angry and resentful. Um, and yet, out of their sadness came such great hope. Megan, you know,
0: uh, refugee resettlement and immigration are such hot-button topics um, in our country and in our culture right now. How do you respond uh, to people who would challenge the whole notion of bringing in more people into this country when there are existing vulnerable groups like uh, the homeless or the veterans, for example?
1: You know, I think they're valid questions that people in the community want to know. You know, if we have trouble serving the community members that are already here, why invite more into that? Um, And why invite those who, who will also struggle? Um, It is inevitable. It is not easy to come to America as a refugee. It is, it is by no means a golden ticket. And, um, and so absolutely. And I think education is probably the biggest answer to that. Educating people on the United States commitment and responsibility, historical commitment to this cause, um, and the benefits of of having participated in the refugee program since um, World War II, and even some can argue a little before that, but formally since World War II, um, having a refugee program and and how important it is to not only national security and, and security in the world, but also to our commitment um, with other nations to to provide a home for the homeless. I mean, these are the world's homeless, um, and Refugee camps are by no means a long-term solution, uh, and it's unfortunate that there are people, generations of people, living, being born, <laughs> dying in refugee camps. And so, to be able to offer them the opportunity to have a home in America is is something that's very important.
0: So, while you were at the Welcome to America project these are the types of questions that you sometimes had to answer and um, many times uh, you were the one that had to do the educating and the explaining of the benefits of um, our country participating in the uh, global refugee programs as well as sort of talking about our historical commitments Um, and so you were doing a lot of the educating and handling some of these questions So by anyone's standard, I would say the job that you had as an executive director there is a big job. And so a question I have for you is, how do you manage that in your early to mid-20s, really to just sort of take on this massive challenge, take on a hot-button topic, and then also at the same time exhibit organizational leadership skills? Uh.
1: Well, you know, given the way I was brought up and the amount of responsibility that I um, was given at a young age, um, my mother's health was not good starting, starting in middle school and and definitely into high school. And so through my early teens and, and into my 20s, I had um, a, a really uh, enormous amount of responsibility in the home life. And so uh, that, that, Prepared me well, and and <laughs> maybe stupidly so. Um, you know, some some people may be very brave and walk into situations, um, knowing that they can fail and and still taking on the challenge. I think I just didn't know what, uh, what I didn't know at that time. I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't call it bravery or, or, um, or, you know, a, a conscious choice. I think, um, I just had confidence that, you know, I've, I've done numerous things before with, um, with, with very important and heavy outcomes. Um, and, and so just walking into that and, and being willing, um, wasn't as hard for me given my background.
0: Megan, are you an only child?
1: I am. Yeah. Only child and raised by a single mom and, and not having family living close in the area while growing up and dealing with, with mom's health issues, um, did make me very responsible at an early age.
0: Obviously your mom was a pivotal figure in your life. What can you tell us about her?
1: So my mom was the oldest of four children. Um, so she as well took on a lot of responsibility um, in her upbringing. Uh, and she always had this this sense of entrepreneurship, this sense of, of business and work ethic, um, I think that she got from, from my grandfather. Um, and moving to Arizona and making that, decision. It was definitely a decision for her to become a single mother. Um, Having me when she was eight years old and thinking that, you know, this might, there may not be more opportunities for her to have children. And if it was something she wanted to do, she needed to do it on her own. And so she really did that on her own, um, and I, I saw her as a child, um, growing up, you know, being being the breadwinner, being the one who, um, who worked hard, who worked multiple jobs, who did what it took to put food on the table, and and always was aware that that was her decision, that that was what she wanted, um, that this was the life that she really wanted to create, um, and she imparted a lot of very tough lessons on me about. Um, the value of a dollar and and the importance of um, entrepreneurship and um, and work ethic. So I've, I'm very lucky and very blessed. to have seen her work very very hard uh, all her life, and to have that as a value in our family um, and for me. And so, so that's that's a big part of who my mom was uh, for me. Um, her faith and her religion was also very important to her. So. Being raised Catholic and having that as a, a weekly, um, sometimes daily part of our life was very important. Her faith was um, unflappable and, <laughs> and really something to be admired. Um, and when her health took a took a turn, um, the turn that it did, um, it was a really big challenge because I think it shook a lot of those things. I had always seen my mom as the strong single woman who could do anything, who could, who could take on any challenge. Um, and, and her disease and her illness um, took, really took some of those things away from her, which, which was hard to watch. It was very hard to watch.
0: What was the illness that your mom had?
1: Um, my mom actually suffered from alcoholism. That, that was the cause of her death. Um, it was something that she struggled with. I probably all of her life, but it, it really got bad, um, in kind of the mid nineties, um, because she, her held work as such an important value to her when, when she was laid off of a job because the company simply couldn't Keep that many employees. Um, I think she took it as a as a huge blow to her to her ego and and kind of um, uh, upset her world. In that she was no longer able to see herself as that that uh, tough businesswoman. So it was rough. It was really rough watching her um, struggle with that. It was also really powerful at times um, to see her struggling with that uh, in a good way. Um, it allowed me a lot of lessons early about our family and about um, the challenges that my genetics brings with it. And, um, you know, I, I miss her every day. Absolutely. Um, but I but I also see that um, substance abuse is uh, an incredibly difficult challenge for people. Um, and that's something that I think will continue to stick with me in my life, um, whether whether that's an area where I'm able to make a difference in the future. Um, I see the toll that that can take on not just individuals, but families and communities as well.
0: Uh, that's a powerful story. You know, when I think back to the 90s and even, I mean, just to 2009 and 2010, there's so much about addiction, the disease of addiction um, that we didn't know and we're still just sort of in the process of learning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're, we're still learning um, every day. But, uh, but having seen my mom in some of the circles that she was able to participate in during her illness and, and seeing um, some of the miracles that, that happen in people's lives, um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's been an incredible spiritual opportunity to see the way God can work in people's lives. I think it's really easy to see substance abuse as a, as a character defect <laughs> rather than as a disease. And, and the more I learn about it and the more I see it um, affecting our community and, and people, individuals and families, um, I, I see uh, what, a, what a baffling disease it really is um, and you you really have to have compassion for people, um, that are struggling with that. You do, um, because they're each, they're each challenged in their own way, but, um, but they're also each wonderful people, um, <laughs> which you can see before the effects of the disease take hold, uh, just like I saw in my mom.
0: Okay. So understanding a little bit more about, um, how you learn to take on responsibility, even as a child, really, as an only child of um, a uh, single mom who's struggling with the disease of addiction, how were you able to actually learn that responsibility? And how did you, um, even at that young age, learn to overcome some of the challenges and, you know, go on to uh, successfully complete high school and then earn your college degree and, you know, do the study abroad and forge the life that that uh, you've created for yourself. How were you able to do that?
1: You know, I I don't know. I have to kind of look back and think about that um, often because, you know there there were some really incredible people um, that that God put into my life to to help make sure that I was. Um, still very well cared for whether it was neighbors or um or extended family members um that that were able to be there for me regardless of what was going on with my mom and um and so those were huge sources of support um but uh but i think at the end of the day when when that's what you grow up in and that's what you know you just kind of get up and do what you have to do um and it it's it's something that kind of makes you resilient. Um, if you don't know what you don't know, then <laughs> then you just keep moving forward, right? So
0: Years ago, my then boyfriend and now husband Jason and I took a road trip to Las Vegas. Um, I'm a little bit of a jittery driver. Interstates are not my favorite thing. And um, on the way there, Jason drove the entire way. But on the way back, he had a big headache and he asked me to drive us back home. So I very hesitatingly got behind the wheel, we had just started dating, I you know, wanted to not be the weird girl who's scared to drive on the interstate, drive home on the interstate. So anyway, I get behind the wheel and I guess I was driving a little bit too slow. Um, cars were trying to get by me, some of the drivers behind me were waving at us with one finger, if you know what I mean, and they seemed annoyed. And finally Jason asked me, Sila, why are you driving so slow? See, as I was driving, all I could focus on were the bends in the road. And I told him that I was slowing down because I didn't know what was behind each bend in the road. So Jason just turned to me and said something that um, I've actually never forgotten. He said, Sila, you know what's behind every bend? More roads. See, for some reason, hearing Megan's story reminds me of that incident. When she talks about taking on the tremendous responsibility that she had as an executive director for the Welcome to America project in her early to mid-twenties, instead of focusing on the uncertainty around the bend, she just saw more road. When she talks about taking on responsibility in her teens as her mom struggled with the disease of addiction, And she kept moving forward and graduated from high school and went to college and did a study abroad and really uh, found ways to fulfill a dream. Megan just saw more road and in some instances perhaps even paved the road. Um, I think that's the thing with Megan. She just sees more road. Curious about the world and would love to travel but doesn't have the money to do so. No problem. Megan sees more road and finds a way to bring culture and diversity to Scottsdale, not a city known that is known as a, a mecca of multiculturalism. And maybe this is one of the the ways that being fearless looks like. You don't know what you don't know, but despite the uncertainty, you just see more road and you just forge forward. It's sort of like that uh, quote that's attributed to Taylor Swift, and I'm not sure if it's hers or not, but... The quote goes something like, You know, fearlessness is not the absence of fear, but the ability to move forward in spite of the fear and and the doubt that exists. So, thinking about that, I now actually would like to officially add another descriptor um, to Megan. And so, in addition to uh, adjectives like beautiful, intelligent, poised, and grateful. I'd also like to use and add badass as a way to describe Megan. Okay, so now back to the interview. So Megan, you've had uh, so many experiences working with people from uh, considerably different backgrounds and you've built relationships and friendships with people from across the globe. Why do you think diversity is important?
1: Well, it's, it's so interesting how boring our lives would be if everything was, uh, <laughs> was, was one shade of gray. Um, it, you know, it, diversity allows me to get a different perspective on my life and my opinions. Um, it's, it's exciting and interesting. Um, it allows me the opportunity to learn every day um, from different people. And I think it's important to our children's education. That as the world becomes more globalized, whether we're um, whether we're frustrated by that or we see the benefits, um, it's a it's a necessity. It's something that's that's critical for the next generation to grow up in diverse communities and and understand how to interact and participate in those.
0: Can you talk specifically to how having a diverse network has impacted you personally? Hmm.
1: Um, well, I can say that I am a very different person uh, because of the communities that have allowed me to to participate, both the refugee community and international students, um, the educational community. Uh, I'm I'm a very different person and have a lot more opportunity when I don't understand a situation either in my life or, or of national or international importance to, to seek out those relationships that can help me answer those questions. Um, probably 15, 20 years ago, turning on the news and, and watching the things that were going on internationally, I, I wouldn't have had a personal connection. I, it would have been very easy for me to sit on my couch, sit in my bubble and say, gosh, that's really sad. But today when I turn on the news and I, I look at the things going on in the world, it's, it's personally impacting. Because when you see an explosion in Jakarta, you immediately think of those individuals that you know who are living there. Um, when you see things going on in Syria, you think of the individuals that you know who have had to flee there. And so I'm a very different person and I think positively so.
0: Does having a diverse network, um, as you do, give you any sort of like um, additional insight into um, the commonalities that we all share, despite our uh, differing cultures and uh, geographies and locations? So is there, I guess, in other words, is there anything that um, binds us? Are there any kind of values that bind us, um, despite our different backgrounds?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know. I think that question, um, is interesting on so many different levels. I think it's really easy to say, gosh, human values are the same all over the world and everyone wants the same thing in their lives. But, um, but I think what that tends to do is give culture, um, a very shallow, um, place in our lives. I, I think culture and, and, Culture and, and history and, and who you are is so much deeper than that um, so I, I don't know how to answer that question <laughs> because um, yes I think there are universal human values but um, but I don't speak for everyone in Zing. Megan how
0: do you deal with instances when you are faced with um, a different culture that has a set of values that is in direct um, conflict with your own personal values?
1: Hmm. Um, well, I would say I first seek to understand and the the best way that I found to do that is to approach um, community members. So for instance in, in working with Somali refugees who have come to Arizona and wanting to know the best ways to provide services to them and the most Appropriate ways to provide services to them, Um, working with those Somali community leaders to understand and, and taking the time to ask the right questions about, tell me why the community feels that X, Y, or Z. Tell me why your culture views this as inappropriate or this as of utmost importance and seeking first to understand before seeking to find a a resolution or offering a resolution. I think the understanding and the relationship building is a critical aspect of that. From your perspective, what does
0: successful assimilation look like?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question. (laughs) I think, um, you know, at the, at the base level, assimilation is being able to succeed in, in your goals in a new environment, um, and that that may be different from for different people. Um, what a a senior citizen, grandmother who comes from uh, a refugee camp where she's been living for the last thirty years, when she comes to Arizona to live and to assimilate. Um, her assimilation process is going to look very, very different and her success in assimilation is going to look very, very different than it would for um, a young single male who is coming and wants to continue his education. So I think assimilation is a very personal process. Um, not only does cultural culture influence that, but also the communities and the community leaders help to define that as well. Um, But it's also very different for each individual. So there's a lot of different layers to that. Um, Language, of course, is a huge part of that. Employment, um, finding a way to to connect with your community, your local community here. Um, Finding friends in a religious community and being successful in however you define that.
0: That's such an interesting way uh, to frame assimilation. Uh, I mean, even as a uh, person who has, um, you know, as a former refugee who grew up in Germany and then moved to Omaha, Nebraska from Hamburg. Um, I'd never really considered assimilation from, um, an individual perspective in and an individual success story perspective and that it can actually look different, um, for different people depending on who they are and what their background is. That really is a um, pretty incredible way to frame that um, whole concept of assimilation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I think you know that first year when refugees arrive is is so so challenging, and i i can't I can't even imagine what it is that they go through emotionally, trying to adjust, <laughs> trying to adjust themselves, and and trying to find themselves. Um, but I think it, in many refugee programs not in the United States, but in Europe, perhaps, I think there is an attempt to, um, to define refugees values or to to look at the values of refugee populations and, and get them to understand what are the community values. So whether that means you must learn the language, no matter what your age is, you must, um, understand our family structure, you must understand our societal structure and, and fit into that, um, I think we're very lucky in the United States to have the opportunity for refugees to define that for themselves. Um, the program when refugees come is very short, the assistance that they get is, is very short in terms of time and in terms of support. And so they're really forced to get out of the refugee program, that safe space and and seek out community resources. Um, and again, that's going to be very different for each individual. but but I think there is some, there is a, a real intelligence in that in that um, and in the way our program is structured in allowing and, and also forcing um, refugees to get out and seek out those community services that that best work for them.
0: How do you respond to uh, people who worry that, multiculturalism and diversity, um, and perhaps the individual nature of assimilation um, is breaking down the overall fiber of America and the things that unite us as Americans.
1: Um, I, would, I would take issue with the framework that someone saying that is coming from. Um, you know, I think America today, with or without refugees or immigrants coming in, I think we need to recognize and and be aware that there there are many different um, there are many different visions of the American dream um, and that goes for for all different people you know someone living in Hawaii and someone living in Georgia are going to have two very different experiences of what it means to be an American, and even maybe interpretations of American history and American historical um, uh, the historical incidents. Um, and so you know, America is this beautiful fabric of people and and history and and many different 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 um, backgrounds and and it's been strong. It's been woven very strong. and I think to assume that more difference will somehow make that less beautiful or or less strong um, assume something that that is a fallacy to begin with. There is not one American dream, um, at least from my perspective, and that's okay. That's what makes us a really beautiful and very strong country.
0: So how do we come together as a nation? At the end of the day, what unites us?
1: Well, I think um, the ability for all Americans to participate in, in this democracy, the ability for Americans to get involved um, as they choose with their communities, be it volunteering or political activism, um, that to me is what defines America. And, and to be able to stand up for your viewpoint um, and to have peaceful discussion around that is, is something that I really value about our community. And I think it's something that's, that's very unique um, and I hope it's something that continues into the future, uh, because we're at a very challenging point in our history as Americans. Um, and so having that open communication, having that, that open platform for all people to participate and get involved and, and to continue to invite people into that discussion who have historically or, um, previously been excluded is what makes America so great?
0: Okay, Megan. So I'm going to ask you a couple more questions that are uh, sort of um, asking for reflections uh, that you have about yourself and your life. And so, along those lines, if you were to describe your life in three chapters, what
1: would they be? Oh, okay. <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. Oh, my goodness. Um. Well, I would say, I I would definitely look along a timeline at that. Um, I would say my mother's passing was a a really um had a huge impact on my life, and I I think it does on anyone's. Um, no matter your relationship. Uh, and so you know, prior to my mother's death, I think would be one chapter of my life, and and currently I'm kind of navigating that second chapter and, um, uh, living as a, as an adult and, um, and gosh, I'm trying to find my way that I want to and can participate in my community and my family, um, And, and the third chapter, you know, I hope is, is still yet to come because I think I have so, so, so much work to do, (laughs) so much work to do. Uh, And so I, I hope that's still yet to come. I would hope the third chapter is, um, is yet to be discovered. Based on your
0: experiences so far, what is your best advice for living?
1: Well, there's a quote that I really, really love, um, it's better to light one candle than to curse the darkness, and I I think it's really important because there's so many so many ways in which we as individuals are broken, and our society is broken, and our our country and our communities can be broken. Um, and I have to remind myself every day to to focus on what I can do, what's put in front of me, what actions I can take today in the moment, right now. To be that light and to and to do the right thing and to be positive um, It's not easy. It's it's definitely not something that that comes naturally to me. Um I have a habit of looking at at how empty the the half-full glass is, and so um I think my life is much more positive and I know others lives are positive when you can focus on on what's in front of you and what impact you can have what you can do because none of us can take on the world um, but we can all take on today and we can take on this moment.
0: Okay, last question. What are your three most favorite qualities about yourself?
1: About myself? Ah! <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, hmm. Well, I would say my curiosity. Um, it's taken me to a lot of um, interesting places, um, being curious and, and being open-minded. Um my ability to be positive, so trying to look at the positive side of situations, trying to move forward from things regardless of of how you find them. Um, and probably just just my humor and, and my goofiness, immaturity <laughs> um, being able to laugh at myself or, or just have fun no matter what the situation is is um, is something that, um, that, that I really like about myself.
0: <laughs> Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Along the lines of your favorite quote, you are a light that shines incredibly bright. Your intelligence, your wit, your compassion, your poise, your curiosity, your positivity, your badassery, and perhaps even goofiness make you a powerhouse. May you continue to see more road ahead as you light the way in your journey to meet the world. I hope you are consistently rewarded with hospitality, generosity, love, and friendship.